March 8th, 2023. We're continuing in our discussions, our limud of Morene Vuchim. And this week I want to address together with you the beginning of Helegimal Perek Mem Aleph. You have that on one of the pages in front of you. And uh, briefly, uh, the background with regards to what we've discussed is not as relevant, although the points we've discussed will certainly become further enriched by this study, um, as you'd imagine any would. Um, but what we've been discussing is uh, twofold, which we've kind of uh, merged into one, visions of Harambam here in the Moreh. He's very much been focused and focusing us on human beings' involvement with regards to construction of reality. And I say that very seriously, reality in the metaphysical sense, and just as much as the physical sense. What is Kiddushah? What is the purpose, so to speak, of Tum'ah? It's for us to become better people. It's for us to designate and to determine matters and concepts which we do know float through rabbinic thought, but Harambam has been crystallizing it and very much and forcefully setting that through uh, in a stark opposition to many of his contemporaries and uh, later authorities in the world of Jewish thought and mysticism. Um, along the same line, and very much in line with that, Harambam has been focusing us from the beginning of the More on the cognitive intellectual pursuits, endeavors, and uh, perfection or ideal of, uh, of human beings as well. In other words, our purpose is, so to speak, that return to Gan Eden, which was envisioned as not just a euphoric life, not just some sort of elevated circumstance of human beings, but more specifically and more refined, it's a reality where understanding of, re- of, of life as it is, of Emet in Sheker in his words, of objective truths was and will be and should be human beings' pursuit and life. So those two points have dovetailed. They've very much come together. In other words, in envisioning the purpose of the Torah and life and Kedushah as human beings' purpose, uh, so to speak, our construction, our appreciation, we in turn have been inspired and need to be inspired uh, in our mind in how to perceive reality, how to inject our understanding in an appropriate way into life as we know it. It's in that context which I, uh, within which I want to now uh, pivot a little bit, but you'll understand from the answer, even just from mentioning what I want to address tonight and maybe in the next two or three classes, um, I'd like to talk about Torah Shaba'alpeh, Harambam's appreciation, his understanding of the oral tradition, the oral study of Torah, what we know as a Mishnah, Talmud, and anything and everything that follows thereafter. How would he uh, envision it? How would he appreciate it? And in turn, how does it fit in, or does it, uh, we'd imagine it will, with his general philosophical thought? And the reason I think it's so important is because as much as we do have that sort of um, uh, punchline, and we'll even quote the Gemara from Masechet Bava Metzian Daf Nuntet, that the rabbis envisioned and taught us that Lo Bashamayim He is not only a, a promise of God, but it's a mandate. You and I need to find the understanding of Torah in our own world, not in the world from above, not in God's world, so to speak. Sounds a little heretical, sounds a little bit uh, against what you'd imagine Torah is supposed to be. And of course, there's all sorts of interpretations as to how to apply that. 
irrespective of how Harambam will apply that, and we'll try to tease that out a little bit, you already understand, I hope, based on our introduction, based on the first, what, 12 classes or so, how that will be important with regards to filling out Harambam's thought. In other words, if the whole purpose here, in terms of your and my lives in this world, is to inject ourselves, is to be impressed by reality and Torah and Kiddushah through our actions and mind and so forth, well, Torah Baalteh being, so to speak, our own expression and interpretation of Torah uh, will be very much in line with that sort of thought. Instead of it just being a reality which we can appreciate from afar, which we can look at and say, oh, that's divine, that's godlike, that is God itself, it's instead something that we're responsible for. Uh, so that's why this will be very significant, and I see it as very much in line with what we've been discussing. Here at the beginning of Perik Mem Aleph, Harambam, is addressing, for our purposes, just one specific line in the Torah. It's a Torah, it's a line, it's a pasuk from just a few weeks ago, parashat, parashat mishpatim. And I'll just uh, mention the three words, it's ayin tahat ayin, ayin tahat ayin, translated as an eye for an eye. Now the pesukim in the Torah, you'll see it on the source, separate source sheet in front of you, first and foremost, the description is if there are people who fight, and one of the person takes the life of the other, the Pasuk says, you have to give a soul for a soul, which is very clearly interpreted as a soul for a soul. You killed a person, uh, you lose your life. Uh, we know this from other Pesukim in the Torah. Uh, if a person take, kills another person, they have death penalty. They actually get mitatzaif, hereg, and betin. The Pesukim continue, however. Pasuk kafdalid there in Parashah Mishpatim and Shemot Perikafalif. Ayin tahat ayin. Now, simple interpretation, of course, following that first Pasuk is the same way it meant a literal soul for a soul. Take the soul of another, your soul is taken. It sounds in turn like it should be a literal eye for an eye. If you poked another person's eye out, if you damaged their eyesight, yours in turn should be so. We happen to know this from codes of law prior to the Torah's giving, uh, most specifically Hammurabi's code, that that was in fact the reality for them. In their societies, cultures, and law system, it was an eye for an eye. Alternatively, some, if not all of us, are familiar with the fact, and we'll get there in just a few moments, that we don't interpret the Torah that way. We, to a certain extent, and I say that very clearly, to a certain extent, never have. To a certain extent, it's almost, almost heretical to interpret it that way. None other than Harambam states something along those lines. Okay, but those are the next words. Again, in context, it really does sound like it's an eye for an eye. Shen tahachen, by extension, a tooth for a tooth, and so forth. Yad tahat yad, rechel tahat ragel, keviyad tahat keviyad, petza tahat patza, habura tahat habura, and then so forth, all descriptions of bruises and wounds to different body parts. It seems to be an eye for an eye, by extension, a tooth for a tooth, and a hand for a hand, and a leg for a leg. Each of those seem literal, although um, in just a few sources later on the page, in source number four, uh, the Gemara, at the beginning of the eighth chapter of Masechet Dalit, makes clear that the vast majority, if not according to the Gemara, all opinions maintain that it means financial uh, charges. Ayin tahatayin means the payment of an eye damage to that person. 
And so, okay, that's the backdrop. That's the Torah Bichtav, so to speak, as we have it, an eye for an eye, the simple interpretation. And then the Torah Baalpeh, which is very much normative thought in Judaism. You don't take an eye for an eye. That's the adjustment, so to speak, of the Torah for a Hammurabi code sort of uh, system. Here's, uh, without any further introduction, Harambam's words here in Perek Memal. If you recall, Harambam is, uh, is grouping. We've not really address the groups. We may, maybe will from afar at some point, but that's what he's doing over this cor- the course of several, many chapters here in the third halik, the third section of the more. So he's in the sixth one, and they are onashim, punishments. Not a matter which we're going to address right now, but he says the purpose of punishments we've already addressed, and it's somewhat well known. Aval. He says, but let's pay attention now, instead of the general principle and concept of punishment, let's pay attention to some of the details. Generally speaking, Generally speaking, that which a person caused and did to another is what's done back to them in the Jewish or Torah court of law. If you damage the person's body, your body in turn is, is damaged. If you damage their property, you're going to have to pay accordingly. Already our eyebrows are maybe raised based on the introduction, based on what we know. What do you mean if you damaged his body, your body gets damaged? It's not so. However, there's an ability for the person who owns uh, the property to forgive. The Harambam over here is going to distinguish between property, damage, financial restitution, and life. You can't forgive the other person's life. You're not alive if they killed you. You can, if they damage something of yours, be mohel. The Torah's maybe novelty is there's no such thing as paying a ransom for another person's life. If you paid, if you killed them, you must be killed. Biglal, and the purpose and reason for this is homrat tikifato, the severity of that which was done. And so the Pasuk describes how the ground will not, or the, the land will not ever atone for uh, a life which was taken, other than taking the life of he who perpetrated that crime. Therefore, if the uh, dead person is there for a day or two, uh, some sort of strange reality, the person's talking from the dead, uh, you're not going to listen to him. The point is, what Harambam is in that theoretical making clear to us is, there's no forgiveness in the context of taking a person's life. Irrespective of who was killed, the Torah doesn't designate, doesn't distinguish, as did other systems, between the stature and status and level and, and anything else of any individual. A life is taken your life in turn is taken as punishment. There's nothing worse in terms of wrongdoing that could be done. 
Yehusar Ever Kamoto, back to that concept. Again, Arambam's introductory stat, set, uh, paragraph mentioned this briefly, but now he returned to it. It raises our, raised our eyebrow, it should raise it again. A person who damaged and took away from another's limb, his limb, her limb, in turn is taken. Kashe yiten mumbadam, kenyinaten bo. Pasuk cites from from Vayikra from Parashat what Parashat Emor Al Taasik Machshavtecha Beze Shanu Onashim Kan Betashlumin. He says, "Don't please get your mind disturbed and stuck on the fact that we punish with payment with money." What do you mean? Don't get d- d- disturbed by that. That's the reality. That's the Torah Shvalpeh Ki Matarati Achshav because my purpose right now is latet ta'amim la ketubim, is to give reason for the text of the Torah, ketubim, velo latet ta'amim la halakha, but not to provide reason for the normative law, for halakha. Strange statement. Right, you would imagine they're the same thing. The Torah, he's distinguishing between the pasuk and the practice. One is it trying to explain the reason why the text is formulated the way it's formulated, and separately, the way it's implemented. I like the way you're speaking. It's not the simple interpretation of his words, but it might be the only interpretation of his words. He didn't say that in the ex- explicitly as you did. So Sam said one is an interpretation of why the text is written how it is, and the other is what it, what it means. He didn't really say that. He kind of said... I'm not telling... What's what it means or how we practice. Okay, how we practice. That's what he did say. What he did say is, I'm not going to explain, uh, I'm not going to explain how we practice. I am going to explain the katuv. Okay, uh, that's, that's an interesting thing. I will remind you, well, we'll read in a second the reminder. Af shegam, and furthermore, he says, even though as well, al halakha zot, on this law, in other words, mamon, that we pay money, yesh li I have a thought. I'll tell it to you face to face. I'll tell it to you if I could speak to you. I'm not going to put it in writing. What an enigmatic, mysterious line here of Harambam. If only, you know, he was able to talk to us right now. Okay, well, that's what we're up against. These are the words in the more that I'd like to address. Now, if you think I'm going to address this in one week, well, you're mistaken, but I will begin a conversation, I, I hope a significant one, with regards to these mysterious words of Harambam. I own a full book on the context, on, the, on, this, on, on these words of Harambam. I think it's a book called Ayn Tahadayin, written from one angle and one approach. I have, I have read and should read many more, many articles and many different passages and different books with regards to this mysterious paragraph of Harambam. Now, first and foremost, it should already be mentioned. In terms of the, the dual dimensions or the two dimensions of what's called Peshat and Derash, we already have commentaries to the Torah, such as Rashbam, for example, throughout Parashat Mishpatim, who will interpret the text of the Torah in a different way than our tradition, quote-unquote, interprets it. You'll have in the, our tradition a description of how the Shomrim, those, uh, if you've ever learned, Masechet uh, Bava the four Shomrim, the four quarter categories of people who are holding on to the property of another, and you look at the commentary of Rashbam, it doesn't seem to resemble it as, at all. We've on more than one occasion pointed out Rashbam's 
hard to tease out, but not impossible, methodology with regards to his commentary to the Torah and how Ibn Ezra also is somewhat in that domain, being able to interpret Pesukim, not per se in the halakha context, but each of them do touch on different traditions or, or different interpretations rather than call it the traditional Hazal, Chachmeh Talmud approach to matters. So in that respect, the fact that Harambam is entertaining a different interpretation although it might not be as popular today, it shouldn't be uh, at all startling. The specifics of what he means over here and the, so to speak, severity of this topic are what make this uh, such a rich uh, passage to address. And the reason I say that is because Harambam in his Perusha Mishnayot, his Hakdamat Perusha Mishnayot, don't have it on the page in front of you, but I do have his words in Hilchot Hovel Umazik, where he reiterates, but differently, he, uh, he refers to this law of Ayin Tahat Ayin as a, what's called a Perusha Mekubal Mimoshe Rabbeinu. He likens it to uh, something along the lines of what a peri etz hadar is. The Torah, of course, talks about the four species on Sukkot. One of them is peri etz hadar, whereas the other three are somewhat straightforward. What a lulav is, what a peri etz hadar, kapot temarim, anaf etz avot, ve'arvenachal. The other three are much easier to pinpoint with regards to what they're referring to. A peri etz hadar, a little bit more difficult in the peshat, simple interpretation, you and I picking up the text without a tradition. It's a peri, it's some sort of fruit, which is from an etzadar, a beautiful tree, is it a beautiful fruit, is it exotic, is it, what is it specifically? Harambam says we have what's called the perusha mikubal mi Moshe Rabbeinu, we have an interpretation which was handed down according to tradition as being the only interpretation of the Pasuk. It's not open to debate. It's not that the rabbis deciphered this according to his understanding. This was appended to the text as it was handed down. It's the way he writes it. He call, he describes that as well in the context of uh, uh, of what tefillin are, and lastly, and to my memory, the most notable one is Ayn Tahatayin. The translation of Ayn Tahatayin, not the uh, 13 Midocha Torah Nidreshet, the Gezerah or something along those lines. This is the interpretation of the words to the Torah as handed from God to Moshe and in turn to us. Well, that being the case, how's there room for any discussion? How's there room for interpreting this in some sort of other direction. This is what the Torah means, this is what the practice is. Uh, what are you talking about? Harambam in his Perusha Mishnayot, in fact, in his Haktama, writes that if a person suggests otherwise, he can be considered a false prophet and will be put to death with Henek. What's he saying about himself in this passage? Harambam here in the Mishneh Torah, in source number two, again, in his halachic code, it should say, How can I uh, perhaps suggest, he's quoting from uh, Midrash Halacha of the Hachamim, that um, the interpretation of Ayin Tahat Ayin is Tashlumin. Pazuk furthermore says, if you bruise a person, you get a bruise in place of that. But separately, the Torah describes how if you bruise a person, you pay for it. Ah, you learn from that. Well, my typos are a little bit rampant over here. Something. And it's so too that 
which was referenced in the context of Ayin and all others. So Arambam has one specific derasha. As I mentioned, on those two dapim and Masech they have many different potential proofs for this concept that Ayin Tahat Ayin is to be interpreted as Mamon. Afal pishit varim elu nir'im me'inyana Torah shebikhtav kulan mefurashin hen mipi Moshe Rabbeinu mehar Sinai vekulan halachal ma'aseh hen beyadenu says Harambam and those are the words I was telling you about. He writes this as well more forcefully, more detailed than his Hakdamat Perusha Mishnayot. This, although I can set forth different ways of deriving this from the Torah, this is our tradition. There's no doubting it. This is what it is. Uh, and this is the way we've practiced and ruled for time immemorial. Sure, more like the oraita to the extent that you can't interpret differently. Well, that's what it, uh, it's 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 uh, tethered to the t- to the pasuk. All right, that, that is, uh, to a certain extent, what we're up against with regards to trying to decipher what is it that Harambam is maybe in this, uh, in this mysterious passage in the Moreh trying to teach us about, well, this is what the Torah is saying, but this is the practice which is different. Well, if the practice is defining the Torah, as he's telling you elsewhere, uh, so what use is there in trying to define the Torah, so to speak? Uh, before we get there, I just want to, uh, well, it'll lead us to an approach. There is a well-known interpretation of Rabbeinu Sa'ad Yagaon. It's cited in the commentary of, of Ibn Ezra to the Torah, and in turn, quickly referenced in source number five in the commentary of Rabbeinu Avraham ben Harambam, the son of Harambam, uh, whose uh, writings, some of which on the Torah we have until today. Um, in, in, in Ibn Ezra here in source number three, in his commentary to the Torah, right there in Parashat Mishpatim, Perikaf Al, Pasu Kaf Gimal, uh, Ayn, in the context of Ayn Tahadayn, Amar Rav Sa'adya, he's citing from Rabbeinu Sa'adya, We cannot and will not, it's impossible to interpret this Pasuk in its simple sense. Because after all, if a person strikes another and in turn diminishes, let's say, a third of their eyesight, how is it possible that we'll in turn cause, again, before a laser and you know, our sort of technology of today, how are you in turn going to exact the same punishment or the same doing to that person? You're, you're prone, you're liable to, in trying to do the same to them, blinding them entirely. What about all the other bruises? If they were in a dangerous part, on a dangerous part of their body, when you're trying to Head it back at the person, and in turn, it's impossible that our minds could and should wrap our head or wrap their, themselves around a simple interpretation of this pasuk. Why? Because of its difficulty in performing. Rabbeinu Sa'adya's Gaon's suggestion is since this is the premise, the Torah is purposed for us as human beings to practice it in a somewhat straightforward way. The fact that the Torah is instructing us something which appears to be almost impossible to actually do, at the very least consistently, 
It can't be that's what it means. That's Rabbeinu Sa'ad Yagon's suggestion. In truth, it has, uh, to a certain extent, sourcing in the Gemara here in source number four, although he doesn't cite it, in Masech Bava Kama, there in Daf Pedal Damudalif, Tanad Ain Tahat Nefesh Tahat Nafesh. Pasuk says separately, an eye for an eye, and a soul for a soul. Of course, it's the opposite order in our Torah. Velo. Nefesh ve'ayin tahat ayin. The Torah doesn't say that you can ever take a soul and an eye for someone else's eye. What are you talking about? And if you actually believe that when the Torah says ayin tahat ayin, it means an actual eye for an eye, it means sometimes it'll be the mishkahat la ayin v'nefesh tahat ayin. Sometimes by trying to poke out the guy's eye, you'll infect them to the extent then they'll have blood which is rushing through. Make, you'll cause potentially to them uh, an imminent death. You'll cause them an impending death. De de avir. Avire, maybe. Nafak lesh nishmate. At the time, at the same time that you'll um, blind them, you'll take their life from them. So again, that's Rabbeinu Sa'ad Yagon trying, I think, to color that sort of opinion and, and to demonstrate it in a, in a fuller sense. The idea being that the Torah is purposed for us to perform both in court and outside of it, its mandates, its instructions, if it's not possible to consistently do so, if it's not possible with even the precise um, implementations of the of the Torah court, then it can't be. That's what the Torah meant. Rabbeinu Avraham ben Harambam, uh, almost lastly here in his commentary, uh, he first he first writes at the very beginning, Ayn Tachadain, Pashte Dekra Mevuah. Period. The simple interpretation of this pasuk is clear. What does he mean? Well, of course he's referring to, I mean, he'll say it afterwards, referring to his father's, his father's words. That's right. Ayn tahatayn. You know what that means. Ubi'arah kabbalah. In our tradition, he's quoting from the Gemara. Shekavanat ha-migra demeshen tahachin. That the interpretation, the read, the perp, the, the pasuk meant the money, the financial uh, amount that you uh, damage that person. V'chen bekulam. And of course, so too by the shin and by the yad, and so forth. Ukvar, and he says, and the truth is, and the rabbis do this, there's all sorts of um, ways of aiding this interpretation, that's the sa'ad, um, by reading the pesukim carefully and pointing out, as we saw a moment ago, or two into two, we saw in source number two, we saw again in source number three, either just read the pesukim, compare the habura to the other ones, read the pesukim and understand it from, from, from taking it all in, thinking about its implementation, and so forth. There are many ways that the rabbis set forth these sorts of interpretation. Katavam Rabbeinu Sa'adya Zal Beferusho, he's referring to the sikhliot, the ra'ayot sikhliot, the logical proofs from Rabbeinu as we just mentioned. He has another one of the proofs of the rabbis, and that is that the Pasuk talks about when they fight, they have to pay money. That's along the lines of his father's, uh, you know, Haram Bam in source number two, that it's an interpretation uh, to a certain extent of what you read earlier. He says, my father, uh, he, should, uh, he should rest in peace, Bamore, in his book, More Nevuchim, Remez Beze, Shenimsar Mimenu Perush, or Perusho Alpe. He hinted at the fact that he gave an oral interpretation, or that he has one. Bohachra'a Pilia, Ben HaKabbalah Upshat HaMikra. And in that oral interpretation of my father, 
there's some sort of decision making. Lehachria means to decide, to discern uh, the Kabbalah, the tradition, and the Peshat HaMikra. Again, Harambam didn't tell us what that was. Well, there's something fundamental in this context. And again, you kind of, I hope, understand why, why this is so fascinating over here with regards to trying to understand what is Torah Shabbat. That's really what we're talking about. We're trying to determine what is it that distinguishes, how do we see an interplay between what we call Peshat HaMikra and the Dirasha, the Kabbalah, the Efshar Lekotvo, I can't write it. Well, my typing's off tonight. Mipeneshehu Zal Histiro, because my father kept it a secret. I can't in turn reveal it to you. So close yet, so far. Of course, we'll never know, but we'll try something. Okay, lastly, with regards to trying to begin this conversation, again, so we saw Rabbeinu Sa'ad Yadlon, we saw Haram Bam in, in his Mishneh Torah, we saw his son, and so forth. Uh, lastly, in terms of uh, introduction with regards to the uh, startling words of Harambam, there are in the classic editions of Morei Nebuchim several commentaries on the page, one of which is in Source 6 and the other of which is in Source 7. Source 6 is the uh, Peru Shem Tob ben Yosef ibn Shem Tob. And uh, in his commentary to this passage, he writes, I am just I'm baffled about what I'm reading over here. Ve'apale I, I am just astonished at, at the highest level of astonishment as to the words of the rabbi of, of Harambam that he's interpreting the Pesukim and not that which is elucidated in the Talmud. The Pesukim need to be interpreted based on the ways the rabbis interpreted them and set it forth for us based on their tradition in Talmud and Gemara and Mishnah and so forth. And this rabbi, Harambam, in his Hakdamat Perusha Mishnah, which we referenced more than once, if even Melech HaMashiach comes and he interprets for us through prophecy, through uh, potential interpretation of the Torah, you should know Ayin Tahdain is literal. We kill him as a, as a Navi Talmud, Because that Melech HaMashiach will be going against our tradition. I don't know where the fa- where's the face of our master, of our rabbi, Harambam. Because he didn't teach us this way. And God, the, the glorious one, should atone for him and for us. If you weren't aware of the fact that this is a controversial um, passage, well, Perushem Tob uh, makes it very clear that it is so. All right, well, that's the conversation, that's the discussion I'd like to have now in the uh, ensuing uh, um, minutes of this class. Yes, Sam? My understanding is then, that when Harambam constructs Mishnantara, he doesn't, he's very careful not to come up with anything novel. And he really is just trying to extract information from the Yes, I would agree with that 100%. Is he not doing that in Source 2? Where two he certainly is. Oh, is he not? Isn't he doing that? Presenting the Talmud. Absolutely. He's doing that in Source 2. Absolutely. In Source 2, Harambam is presenting the, what we're calling Kabbalah, the Talmud. Which we said was very straightforward, that the meaning of this phrase, the meaning of these Pesukim, yes. these phrases are never to be understood. The Correct. Itself Correct. 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 So, so That's what, right. What 
is startling. Um, it's more than that. It's not that there's a contradiction from the from the more to the Mishneh Torah or whatever. Uh, it, I think it's more than that. It's that this particular contradiction is so fundamental with regards to even a theological framework, to, with regards to understanding the tradition of how the Torah was given, that he can't understand even philosophically imagining it differently. So just let's clarify, what is it that he's saying in the Mores that we've read so far that seems to be presenting... That the interpretation... He seems to write, seems to, again, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not per se sold on anything yet. He seems to write... That, he says, I'm giving the reason for the pesukim as opposed to, called the interpretation or the halacha. So he seems to be telling us that the pasuk does state to be interpreted as and that's startling for many. Not for all, per se. The other traditional on-the-page commentary of the more is the perush of Narboni. Um, the Perush of Narboni precedes uh, the Perush of Shem Tov. Shem Tov is a 15th century commentary. Narboni is a 14th century commentary. Um, and in his commentary, he writes the following very much along the lines of Rabbeinu Sa'ad Yagon, whom we read earlier. And it goes something like this. In the, what Harambam means is, in the ideal sense, when you read the Pasuk, the Torah is telling you, ideally, Ayn Tahadayin. To the extent that the Perush of Narboni would tell you that according to Harambam, he writes this, if, he doesn't write it the way I'm saying it, if you're living in 2023 and you could, let's say, with 99% or 100% accuracy say, I'm going to laser pinpoint your eyes and take away exactly what you did to that person, assuming I could determine exactly what was done to that person, you should do so. Okay. Go ahead. Great. Chop off the hand, assuming, and we're going to do it in a sterile fashion. It's not going to get infected and so on and so forth. Yes, that's clear, says Narboni. His understanding of Arambam is as such that he's just like Rabbeinu Sa'ad Yagon, but, so to speak, his spin on it is, whereas Rabbeinu Sa'ad Yagon said, that's what proves that that's what the Pasuk meant, that it means Mamon. Arambam says, no, not so fast. It didn't mean Mamon. We need to apply it as mamon. It's, so to speak, there are two levels of interpretation or presentation of that pasuk. There's an ideal level, which is not achievable, but the Torah is nonetheless stating it. And if you could achieve it, you should be doing it. And then there's the practical, realistic level. That's his suggestion. The difficulty, not a knockout difficulty, but the difficulty in my mind with this perush is what needed to be said orally. I mean, he couldn't state that. And his son's words specifically were that his interpretation touches on the hachra'a, this, uh, this way of discerning and distinguishing between interpretation of the Torah and, so to speak, the words of the Torah themselves. Was that such a secret? Is that really something? I think not as well. So, you know, that's to a certain extent the difficulty um, of this commentary. Go ahead. Going back to the Gemara, there's nothing in the conversation in the Gemara itself that gives Rambam Something to stand on? So, thank you for walking into it. It's almost as if you read ahead. <laughs> Source number eight presents for us the 
um, the, uh, the, the outlier in the Gemara. The Gemara there, Masech Bavakama, as I mentioned, has a good eight to ten statements, one after another after another, from Tanaim and Emoraim, rabbis from the Mishnah, rabbis from the Gemara. You want to know how I know it's Ayn Tachdai, not Mamash, but rather Mamon? Here's my proof. You want to know how I know it? Here's my proof. And each one of them, in their own purposeful way, in their own unique uh, approach, proves it, at least in their mind. Then, startlingly, and the Gemara is startled by this, you have the following, Tanya, and I mean it. You learn the Gemara without everything that we're saying, and you're startled when you get to this. Like you're almost bored at a certain point. Okay, we get it. It's Ayn and it means Bamon. Do we need another proof for it? Another proof? And then you get to this, and it's kind of at the bottom of Daf Pedalet Amudalef. It's almost a, a purposeful you know, layout of the Gemara. You finished with that? Now let me throw a monkey's hammer at you. Period. End of Benaita. My goodness. And the Gemara gets nervous. Mamash You couldn't mean that. Now keep in mind, He's from the time of the Mishnah. So this is Gemara talking several hundred years later. He's a student of Rabban Yohanan ben Zakai. So he's the last generation uh, Tanaim. But he's still long dead. But the Gemara says, It can't mean that. Are you telling me? Rabbi Eliezer doesn't have letle, he doesn't maintain the position of everyone else we mentioned earlier. It's impossible. So the Gemara gives a different interpretation. First one approach, the Gemara says it can't be so. Look at the end of the second line. The way you evaluate the eye is not based on the person who was damaged, but rather based on the person who damaged. In other words, if I, Lo Aleinu, poked out the eye of another person, we don't determine how much they've been diminished by losing their eyesight based on whatever their profession and anything and everything that goes into their life, but rather how much I would have been had my eye been poked out. Why would you do that? Not certain at the second. We'll be suggesting something in a moment. However, what I can tell you is, that's the interpretation of Beliezer, says the Gemara. When he said mamash, he didn't mean mamash. He meant mamash, it's like your eye as opposed to his eye. Of course, it's not the simple interpretation it's of Rebili Ezer. Of course, it's not the simple interpretation. But the Gemara is so certain that Rebili Ezer can't mean it pushes us in that direction. Tosafot says, why would you go in that direction at all? Maybe because for the Eliezer, the concept of punitive damage, uh, the, the, the punishment for damaging a person is to be envisioned like kofir. Kofir is, uh, well, we know that kind of word. It's atonement. The Torah uses that word kofir in one or two places. It's specifically in the context there in Parashat Mishpatim. If a person's shor mu'ad, if their ox, which had gored several times already, kills a person. So the Torah has the following strange sentence. Difficult sentence. says, hashor yisakel, the ox gets killed, v'gam be'alav yumat, and the owner as well gets killed. And then the Pasuk says, but if he wants to pay a ransom, also then he can pay the value. Which one is it? So the rabbis in Masech Bava Kamase, it never meant you actually lose your life. 
It was just a way of expressing the severity of the circumstance. You were always just paying the amount of money. That's what Rabbi Eliezer meant as well. He means that you have to look at it as the payment being, so to speak, your punishment to ransom your own limb. In other words, conceptually, your limb should have been lost, and as a result, we'll pay it in that fashion. Okay, Tosafot's interpretation is instructive. It's important for laying some sort of rationale over here. But we do and have noticed Rabili Ezer's opinion. And that's very significant. Rabili Ezer's words, again, were mamash. And that already needs to be taken into account with regards to what Sam asked just a moment or two ago. Does Harambam have anything to lean on with regards to actually interpreting the Pasuk in somewhat of a literal fashion? And now, although the next segment of the class for me, it's very purposeful, and I believe every part of it. Even if you don't buy everything we're about to do over the course of the next 20 or so minutes, the underlying thread, I hope, will be made clear, and I think that's what we're gonna bring, going to bring back to the words of Harambam. But here's the direction. Pay attention to whose opinion was mentioned there in Masechet Bava Kamandaf Pedalt. It's the opinion of none other than Rabili Ezer. Rabili Ezer, I have a fascination with him. I think amongst many other Tanaim and Emoraim, he's a fascinating personality with regards to his perspective on Torah and Halakha. Would you know it? Rabili Ezer is the opinion there in that Gemara I was referring to earlier, Masech Bava Mitzian Daf Nuntet, in source number 10, who maintains that Torah is Min HaShamayim. What do I mean by that? I mean the following. The Gemara over there tells the following amazing story with regards to its implications and details and so forth. The debate between the rabbis and Rabbi Li'ezer. They debated the ritual status with regards to Tuman Tahara of a certain oven. Tanur Shel Akhnai. One, one opinion maintains Tahor, the other maintains Tamer. Rabbi Li'ezer versus uh, Hachamim. Biliezer is going against the majority. Biliezer, in order to prove his opinion, begins decreeing miracles which are taking place. Trees are falling. The Beit Midrash wall almost falls down. The river is flowing in one direction, goes the other direction. Ultimately speaking, a heavenly voice. Batkol comes out of the heavens and declares, Halakha is like Rabbi Ezer. He settled his case, did he not? At which point the rabbis collectively determine he needs to be excommunicated because halakha goes by the majority view. And along the same lines, lo We don't interpret law by the heaven's decree. What's Rabbi Eliezer then maintaining? How was he assuming that the halakha could be determined in that fashion? Because maybe... Rabbi Eliezer's representation with regards to his understanding of halakha throughout is some sort of heavenly vision. And I want to explain what that means over the course of a little bit. Just moving that sort of thought forward. Again, the question being specifically for us is the interpretation, so to speak, of human beings what is the determined truth or practice of Torah, or alternatively, the interpretation, so to speak, of the heavens. Biliezer is the outlying opinion. Biliezer then, by the way, it should take us by no surprise that he as well is the one who maintains Ain Tahanain Mamash against the thread of the rabbis. Whereas the Gemara says Rabbi Eliezer goes against everyone, of course he goes against everyone else. You want to know why? Because he says, what does it say in the Torah? It says Ain that's what God meant. That's a fascinating thing already, at least in my mind. Now, in order to paint the personality of Rabbi Eliezer for you, 
I gave you a few of my, my favorites with regards to references in the rabbinic text. Uh, in source number 11, it's a midrash in Bimid Bar Rabbah, Rabbi Ahabashem, Rabbi Hanina Amar, Bishaashi Ala Moshe Lamarom, so to speak. We envision when Moshe went up to the heavens, Shama Koloshe Lakadosh Barachushi Yosheb Osek Parashat Paraduma, Veomer Halakha Bishem Omra. He heard God talking about the laws of Paraduma, and he was saying the law in the name of he who set it down here, Bili Ezra Mer Egla Bachinata. Uh, Moshe hears God reciting the law in, would you know it, the opinion of Rabbi Eliezer. And Moshe, in turn, who of course brought the Torah down from the heaven, says, I hope Rabbi Eliezer is a descendant of mine. You want to know why? Because Rabbi Eliezer is very much staunchly based in the heavens. His interpretation to Torah is not interpretation at all. Beliezer is very much tapping into, so to speak, the heavenly voice of Torah, as opposed to the human application. You should know that Gemara is talking about after the excommunication of Beliezer for his opinion, as he's sick, as he maybe is nearing the end of his life, Rabbi Akiva, who is involved in the excommunication, and others come to greet him, and it's a very tenuous, stress-filled encounter because they haven't really talked to him. They excommunicate him. The Gemara describes how he takes his two arms and places them on his heart. Rabbi Eliezer does. Amar, oy lachem shehen Fascinatingly, he says about himself, he envisions himself, so to speak, as a Sefer Torah, and he puts his arms, and they're, and they're kind of like a Sefer Torah, the two sides of a Sefer Torah, which is, which is rolled up. He goes further, and he says, I learned so much Torah from my rabbis, my students didn't necessarily as much. He envisions himself, as did the rabbis afterwards, as a Sefer Torah. You want to know why it's a Sefer Torah as opposed to a Sefer of interpretation, as opposed to a Mishnah, as opposed to a Torah Shba'opeh. Biliezer is defined time and again as the Torah Shebikhtav in its purest sense, representation, and voice. Tanur Rabbanan, the Gemara Masechet Sotayah in source number 13 and Daf Memtet. Mishemet Biliezer Nignaz Sefer Torah. Would you know when Biliezer died, it was almost as if we buried a Sefer Torah. Mishemet Biyoshua, but la itzah machshava. Biyoshua, who is the opposing opinion, always Biliezer versus Biyoshua, when he passed away, we lost etza and machshava, thought and guidance, so to speak, the human interjection. lost a certain uh, wisdom side to Torah. Each of the others, aside from Rabili Ezer, are, so to speak, the human injection and involvement in this. Rabili Ezer represents that Torah, God dimension, the Bashamayim. The, the the Midrash here in Shir Shirim Rabban, source number 14. Bet Midrashos shall be the Ezra Yasuk in Ris Vemena Hatayeta Sham Hayatam, you headed Lodi Yeshua Pama Hat. Rabbi Yoshua said about Rabbi Eliezer's stone, which he sat on, this is like Har Sinai, the individual who sat on it is like the Aaron. Rabbi Eliezer, if you haven't noticed yet, the rabbis envision him, aside from everyone else, as the representation of Torah itself, not Mishnah. Not Mahshava, not Itza, not Tushia, it's rather he's the Torah, he's the Sefer Torah. 
Now, one last segment with regards to trying to develop this and then hopefully bring it back to Harambam and try to set us forward for a continued conversation about these matters. Rabbi Li'ezer is consistently, somewhat consistently referred to in the Gemara as Shamuti. Shin Mem Vav Taf Yod. Now that word is never fully translated. In Masech Nida here in Dav Zayin, Rashi famously interprets it as Lashon Shemata. Shemata means to excommunicate. He's referred to then throughout as Rabbi the Ezra, the excommunicated one. Tosafot and most of the Rishonim, including the Spanish Rishonim, Nashbari, Tva, and others, disagreed. Tosafot quotes from Talmud Yerushalmi a different interpretation. Why do they disagree? They assume the Gemara that describes this excommunication barely even referred to it as such. They instead use a euphemism. They said that they blessed him. The rabbis try to shy away from that sort of language. And then every time you're going to refer to him, you're going to refer to him as the excommunicated one. Instead, suggest Tosafot based on Talmud Yerushalmi and other sources. Shamuti means he was an adherent of the Bet Midrash and school of thought of Bet Shammai. Would you know it? Bet Shammai. Let's for a moment, before even thinking about who Bet Shammai were, think about the name Shammai already seems to refer to the heavens. Bet Shammai, their expression of halacha seems to be as well very much aligned with not so much the practical dimension of you and I finding how to do and appreciate in this world, but rather in some sort of potential, ideal sense, is the Bet Shammai vision. That's very much the description in the book Le'or HaHalacha of Rabbi Shlomo Yosef Zevin, it's a later and recently uh, been uh, repeated and maybe developed a little bit differently by Rabbi Benny Lau in his book The Sages, HaChamim. Um, but here in Le'or HaHalacha, just two lines. Of course, it's a full essay going through many of the well-known disputes of Bet Shemayim Bet and explaining how he sees it in it. Worth the read if your Hebrew is good. If not, read it uh, in the way Rabbi, uh, Rabbi Lau puts it forth. Va'ani yeah, but I repeated the word. Okay. Says, the distinction between Bekoach and Befoal. Bekoach means in potential. It literally means the strength, the potential. Befoal means the practical, the reality. We can call it the ideal and the real. He says that's the distinction between Bet Shammai and Bet Hillel, and you'll find it in many of the disputes between Bet Shammai and Bet Hillel. Rabbi Ben Hillel, as a matter of fact, in that context, if I'm not mistaken, quotes from some Dirashav Hacham of Adya Yosef when he was appointed chief rabbi, maybe of Tel Aviv or at some other juncture, at which point he talked about the Sephardic way of thought being the Bet Hillel way of approach, uh, Bet Hillel approach, both with regards to leniencies as well as the way Rabbi Lau seems to understand it, seeing the people and understanding the Torah through the people. The Gemara Masechet Hagiga, along the same lines, really the, the, the jumping board of, uh, of Rabbi Zevin to getting into this larger discussion, the Gemara describes a dispute between Bet Shem about what was created first, the heavens or the earth. We have seemingly contradictory psukim in the Torah. The very first pasuk in the Torah says, Bereshit bara Elohim et ve'et ha'aretz. The pasuk in Bereshit perek bet, pasuk dalet says, Be'yom asot Adonai Elohim eres ve'shamayim. Whereas the first one mentions heavens and then earth, the second one in chapter 2 mentions earth and then heavens. Which one is it? Well, of course, chapter 1 and chapter 2 of Bereshit seem to be describing something different 
Well, which one was it? Bet Shammai will tell you, and they do. Shamayim nivru techilah. The heavens, our namesake to a certain extent, was created first. They see everything through the prism of heavens. Eliezer. That's the personality we just saw. Of course, he's an adherent of the Bet Midrash of Rabbi Eliezer. In fact, there is a debate amongst the Rishonim. How did he study with Rabbi Eliezer? I thought he was a student of Rabban Yochanan ben Zakkai. The answer, of course, is it doesn't mean he per se learned with Bet Shammai or with Shammai or anything of that sort. It means his mindset, his school of thought was purposed, was conditioned, was directed like Bet Shammai. He saw everything through the ideal lens. His vision of Torah was the way, so to speak, it exists in the heavens, the way it should be for us, not the way it is for us or can be for us in the real sense. That's the Bet Shammai approach as opposed to Bet Hillel. The Gemara, in fact, has the dispute spelled out better. Bet Shammai, Bet Hillel turns to Bet Shammai and says, wait a second, whoever, Amar lahem Bet Hillel, Bet Shammai, in the third line of Elidivrechem, Adam bone aliyah v'hakach bone bayit. I always love that line. Does you, can you imagine a person building the roof, building the attic, and only then the home? Of course, Bet Shammai don't, don't need to answer that question. Of course, that's the way it is. We're always seeing everything through the roof through the heavens, through the attic, that's very much that dispute. Lastly, before we put it all together, there is, uh, I've read too much on this to be able to be convinced that this is a true t- tradition, but it's been mentioned enough times and from the school of thought of Gaon Mivil, not tracing it all the way back to the mystical thought of, it'd be its Hakluri of Arizal, here in source number 18, Malbim cites it, as a matter of fact, in his commentary to the Torah, that when Mashiach, when the end of days arrives, we will no longer practice the school of thought and approach of Bet Hillel, but rather that of Bet Shammai. The idea being that Bet Shammai, in a certain sense, is the ideal. The reality, as you and I know it in this world, as you and I live in it, is a Bet Hillel reality. But that's not to say that Bet Shammai is wrong. To be able to say the words of Gemara, and to appreciate, that means to appreciate both an ideal and a real. I bring you back now to the words of Harambam here in the Moreh. Harambam, I think, is very purposefully describing the Torah, what he calls the Katuv, at least in the Hebrew translation over here, the Ketubim, as opposed to the Halakha. And I think what he's already beginning to describe to us, it takes more work to understand what his secret is, but what he's describing to us already is not per se the interpretation of the Torah as you and I have received it. Call it a Perush Mekubal Moshe Rabbeinu. He's not disputing that. That's the Rabbi Yoshua camp. That's the non-Rabbi Li'ezer camp. That's the Bet Hillel camp. But that's not to say that the Rabbi Li'ezer, that the Bet Shammai camp are wrong, that there's not any validity or truth to them. In other words, as Sam said in the first moment of the class, why is it that the Torah does say it in those words, Ayn Tahatayim? Why doesn't the Torah instead say, Mamon, Kesef, whatever the Lashon is, Tahatayim? The Torah is telling us there's different levels of understanding and appreciation. Why would I need to appreciate the Torah on some sort of betch on my level? I'm not going to practice that ever, but it does describe an ideal. Ideals are instructive with regards to how we understand life. We, you and I, live life. My favorite example for this in a very basic and elementary sense is, and if you've heard it from me a hundred times, I'm sorry, but I'll tell it again. My, ch- my son... My oldest son was born in Israel. My oldest son always dreamed of being the president of the United States of America. And when he was five years old and in kindergarten in Breuer's in Washington Heights, he, I picked him up from school one day and he was hysterically crying, but literally hysterically crying. And he was very angry at me that I never told him he can't be the president of the United States. He wasn't born in America. 
And I came home and my wife was waiting for us and she said, I told you, we should have told him this a long time ago. And I wasn't so wise in actually methodologically determining educationally, but in the aftermath of it, it tells for a great story because I don't regret not telling him that because I do believe that in him growing up and envisioning himself as, oh my gosh, in my ideal sense, that's who I am, that doesn't detract from the fact that he won't be there. When we talk to our children, say to them, reach for the stars, and we mean it, and we encourage them to do things that you and I might know they'll never actually accomplish, we're nonetheless causing them, we're all nonetheless pressing them to have a certain perspective, to have a certain ideal which is governing anything and everything that they do. The Torah in telling us then that if you take another person's eye, your eye is to be taken, is describing not only the severity of the act, but what you did and how you should understand what you are deserving as a result of doing that. In the practical sense, both as Rabbeinu Sa'adiagaon told us, it can't and won't be done in such a fashion. But beyond that, for one reason or another, the rabbis, in their interpretation or their tradition of the Torah, never had that as a reality. That's not to say that you and I shouldn't, before engaging in combat with another person, not check ourselves and say, wait a second, do you know what the Torah tells us? Do you know what the Torah tells me the severity of this action is? It tells me that I'm supposed to get that back to myself. Harambam then in this passage, Misha Hiser Evi, Husar Ever Kamoto, citing this pasuk is describing an ideal. And Harambam, very importantly for us then, in the larger context of our conversation says, I don't want to get confused right now between the message of the Torah and the practice which the rabbis interpreted for us. Because the practice which the rabbis described to us and handed to us is what's going to govern everything. Of course, unless in the Yemot HaMashiach we're going to go like Beit Shammai if we're going to accept that, you know, what that means or anything along those lines. Not per se like Narvoni says that we should be, we shouldn't be doing it. But Arambam is describing to us nonetheless an ideal. In a book that we've been discussing, developing, and realizing how Arambam points to us and the purpose of Torah, of existence, of Kiddushah, of Tumah, of Mitzvot, of Mikdash, even the very words of God, and that's the punchline here, are for us. Not to say that they don't exist as did Shabbat, independent of you and me. They exist, of course, there's an ideal that's described there. But practically speaking, you're the one who injects Shabbat with that Kiddushah, much as you're the one who the Torah is going to govern your life and tell you how to do that based on the interpretation and traditions which were passed down to you. It means that uh, moving things forward just a bit here in this Pedic, and we still have yet to really deal with the fine details of A, what that secret of Harambam that he wanted to tell and needed to tell us orally, haven't really addressed that fully, and we haven't really addressed the mechanics of how this Torah Shabal Peh, interpreting God's word really works, but what we have noticed over the course of this class, I hope, irrespective of the particulars of Bili Ezeh and Bet Shammai, irrespective of many of the other uh, approaches that we've encountered along the way, is how Harambam sets forth for us over here another jarring circumstance of how far he'll take that Gemara of Loba Shamaimi, how far he'll take it in terms of saying to you and me, you are governing reality. Can you imagine? He's saying the Torah, so to speak, told you something different. But nonetheless, it's true what you interpreted. It's God-given how you're interpreting it. 
That's been his message to us throughout. Don't imagine this just as a book which is as an ideal, which needs to be appreciated as a book on the shelf, as a message on the wall. It's rather how you will now practically apply that to your life. That's the Loba Shamaimhi. And in Harambam's world, those words, that interpretation, that approach is taking on a whole new life with regards to this mysterious and controversial passage of him telling us we have the Ketubim and then we have the Halakha. Again, a little or a lot more to be discussed and deliberated and, and debated and, and, and filled out. But that, I think, is the beginning of this conversation. Baruch Adonai Amen wa